Book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. Pay careful attention. This is God's holy word. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes. But the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, See, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things. Nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks to God. Father, I ask you to be with us this morning as we look to your word for comfort, for wisdom, and for encouragement. Open our eyes to the beautiful message of Ecclesiastes, this sometimes perplexing book. Guide my words, I pray. Bless my efforts to bring your word to your people this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Greetings from the early service. It's good to see so many new faces I don't even recognize. It's wonderful. Um, I have a bad back, and it went out this week, so I need to sit, and I uh, bear with the uh, slightly different arrangement. If uh, our pastor wasn't so tall, this wouldn't be quite so conspicuous, but we'll, we'll make do here. Brothers and sisters, we're living in some bewildering times. It can feel like we're living in days where everything is just being undone. That so much of what we value, so much of what we cherish, is just coming undone. The, the liberty that we enjoy, that's given to us through the gospel of God's grace. Christian liberty, it feels like it's, it's coming unwrapped. Those wonderful, the, way, the wonderful way in which our liberty has been codified to us in our national polity, it feels like it's getting completely undone. It's not just the loss of our civic virtues that may be disturbing us, but also the church itself. It seems like it's unraveling, like it's being sifted, like it's coming apart. There's so much going on, so much coming to light this year that you might be tempted to despair. You might feel hopeless. You might feel distressed. If you're somebody who already struggles with anxiety or depression, you may have felt completely overwhelmed this year. But you might have the opposite temperament. You might be someone who, when they sees everything unraveling and coming apart, that you, that you get outraged and you want to rise up and you want to fight. You want to tear down corrupt institutions and replace them with, with new ones. You resonate with the tagline from one of my favorite podcasts where they quote Calvin Coolidge, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. However you might respond to all the crazy that we're seeing in our news feeds every day, whether with, whether with an inclination to worry or to warfare, it can be very easy to become morose, 
hopeless, where all of the joy is robbed from our lives, or so worked up that you can't think about anything else. We can all err on either side, one side or the other, but when we err, we end up being robbed of our Christian contentment. The book of Ecclesiastes, it can restore a sense of balance. It can restore stability to our emotions. It can lift up the downcast and humble the revolutionary. And so this morning, as we dip into this book to just get an overview of its message, I hope that you will find your stresses relieved or your ambitions brought into proper perspective. But I have to warn you, because the book of Ecclesiastes, it's, it's like a wrestling match. And, and I'm not talking about like polite wrestling and the Olympics where everyone just kind of plays by the rules. I'm talking WWE kind of wrestling. We're talking pile driver, figure four leg lock, lock clotheslined off of the ropes, that, that kind of wrestling. Or maybe since we're at church, we should use like Jacob, or Jacob and the angel, that, that kind of wrestling. That's the kind of wrestling that we face in this book of Ecclesiastes. And this wrestling match doesn't end until either we give up or we end up with a dislocated hip like Jacob. If you don't give up, though, if you puzzle out the message of this book, then that limp that you end up being left with will be a blessed limp. So if contentment and stability and peace have been elusive to you this year, if it's, this year's put you off balance, if it's increased your anxiety levels, that it's gotten you so riled up that you don't know what to do, well, let's get ready to rumble as we wrestle with the wisdom of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. And in order to do that, we're going to take a look quickly at the theme and the authorship and the content of Ecclesiastes, which we see in the first three verses. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? Right away, as we begin the book of Ecclesiastes, we see the theme in verse 3. Verse 3, where he says, What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? That's it. That's the thesis question. It gets traced out all the way through the book of Ecclesiastes. And it has to do with our toil. What benefit do we gain in our toil, in our works, in our efforts? That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is focused on. Our routine and ordinary work and toil all the days which we live under the sun. And since that's the focus, since that's the subject matter, the question here is quite broad. It's quite expansive and quite relevant to our lives, right? Because if you think about how much time we spend in the world, quite a bit of it sleeping, but the other part not sleeping is working, right? I mean, that takes up the bulk of our hours. And for people in history before the modern age, it really took up almost every one of their waking hours. One of my um, clients is a museum down in uh, Miami called the Vizcaya Museum and Gardens. It, it was the winter house of James Deering, who inherited the, the, the Deering Harvester Company. He, he essentially built a Newport-style mansion in Miami to, summer, to, to winter in, and he filled it with all art and antiquities and decorative arts. It's really quite beautiful. You should visit it sometime. But all that amazing wealth that built these mansions during the Industrial Age and the Gilded Age, it came from the factories where the workers worked six-day weeks. 
six day weeks, sometimes 10, 12 hours a day. That was a lot of time spent at work. And, and then uh, George Westinghouse, he decided to, like, to up the ante to, to hire the, the bar for, for employment by offering his workers, his workforce, half-day Saturdays. Half-day Saturdays, what a revolution. Uh, his workers loved it. Edison, Rockefeller, Carnegie, they weren't so happy about that, that new standard. But we need to remember, for us, in our five-day work week, 40 hours a week, that's new. We have more leisure time than anyone in history, and certainly more leisure time than most poor nations in the world where people still have to work, extremely difficult. So regardless of, of the fact that we have more leisure time, we still today spend a lot of our time working. And so the scope of this question, this pursuit that Solomon is after, what profit, what gain, what benefit am I gonna get from all this toil that I do day after day, week after week, year after year? What do I get out of it? What's the benefit? That's what we're going to be after. That's what he's going to try to answer for us. But in order to get to this answer, the first thing we have to do is take note of the context. Very important context. Very limited scope of his question. He says, what do we gain from our toil under the sun? Under the sun. It's a very important thing to observe because that's the limit and extent to which he's going to pursue this. Solomon's not going to speculate about how the things we do now, day to day, affect our eternal rewards. Like, he's not denying that there's an eternity. He speaks of eternity, but what he, he really wants to focus in on the here and now. What do we get? What comes out of all of this toil, the sweat of our brow? We do this day after day. What is the gain? That's what he wants to know under the sun. This is the question that haunts Solomon. This is the question that haunts this book. This is what we are after to answer and pursue. Now, I've mentioned already uh, Solomon as the author. Uh, I should probably mention that he's not explicitly named here. In verse 1, it says, these are the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So it doesn't say Solomon. It just says the preacher. That's how the author's identified. Uh, but I see no reason not to accept the historical consensus of the church that it was Solomon. The context of the book seems to suggest this was Solomon. So I'm going to say Solomon. I believe Solomon was the author. And, and if it was, if in fact this is Solomon's words, then who better? Who better to go after a question like this, right? Solomon had a fairly long life. He lived quite a long time, so he had a lot of time to consider this question all, during all ages of, of his life, over his life. He also had plenty of resources, right? He had the time, he had the wealth, he had the education, he had every advantage possible to pursue this question. He also was reigning over a kingdom at a time when, when it was well regarded by all of the other kingdoms. They came and sought out the wisdom of Solomon, so he's well connected. And there was relative peace between those kingdoms during his reign. So he had a long life, he had all these resources, he had peace in his days, and, not to mention, a supernatural gift of profound wisdom given to him from God. So who better than Solomon to attempt to answer this question, which is so practical, which affects all of our lives because we toil so much of all of our days. So Solomon is attacking this question, he's pursuing it, and he comes to an answer right away in verse 2, and he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You know, I think some people, they don't spend time in Ecclesiastes. They maybe read through it quickly. They skip over it, perhaps. And, 
It's not surprising when the message is such a Debbie Downer right out of the gates, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It makes sense that you'd want to move on and find something more encouraging to read, you know, like Lamentations or something. <laughs> but you can't skip this book, and you can't skip the hard answers, the hard issues that he's dealing with. You have to dive in. We have to let this book smack us in the face and wake us up so that we can come to his ultimate answer. He's going to have an ultimate answer, which is different from this first one, although this first one is going to occupy the most verses. It's going to take up most of his observations. And we do need to, of course, deal with this word here, vanity. Vanity of vanities. Your Bibles may say vanity. They may say meaningless. Meaningless, meaningless. All is meaning. That's even more encouraging. Futile, futile. All is futile. This those choices of words, they're not wrong, um, but they do lack what is really being said there. In, in the Hebrew, the word is hebel, and that word, it, it, it basically means um, misty or vaporous or windy, something that can't be grasped or laid hold of. And, and so we want to recognize that the actual words there, they, they don't really have such a negative connotation as vanity, meaningless, futile would. Though, that said, if you try to grasp something that's ungraspable, you are going to be experiencing futility. If you insist on defining something that's undefinable, you will end up with meaninglessness. And so certainly those ideas of vanity and meaningless, they are definitely there. But really the term is broader, and it just means vaporous, misty. You can't grab hold. It's like the wind. So nevertheless, he does have a negative first answer. It doesn't sound great. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, that there's nothing to be gained under the sun. But he doesn't stop there. He continues to pursue this question, pursues it all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. We're just going to look at the first two chapters where he's going to wrestle this out and he's going to wrestle it into four different contexts, four, four wrestling matches he's going to engage in going after the answer to this question. And so as we look at how he pursues this question, the very first area that he looks to find some answers is nature. And we already read verses uh, 4 through 11. I'm not going to read them again, but if you scan back over them, you'll see that he's taking observations from nature. He's looking outside empirically, trying to see what can I discern about the meaning of toil, the profit from toil in all of our days. And he looks at generation following generation he looks at the sun, how it rises and sets on its circle, goes around and around and keeps going. He looks at how rivers just flow endlessly into the sea, never filling it up and returning back again to their source. He considers the wind and its circles and circuits going from south to north, around and around, how time marches on, how season follows season, the calendar goes around and around, year after year after year. This idea of circularity, circuits, courses, it's, it's all throughout his observations on nature. That's what he takes away. He says, nature, it's like a circle. It's like a circuit. It just revolves and revolves and revolves, and it keeps going, and it keeps going, and it keeps going. And it vexes him. Because compared to that, his life, it's a tiny little span. It's, it's, it's a segment, not a circle. It has one starting point when he's born and another starting point when he dies. And when he considers his own life and the limits of his life over against this ongoing, endless, repetitive circle, he's vexed. 
he's already realizing that no matter what answer he comes up with to fill in that blank, it's going to like be tiny. It's going to be minuscule. Our lives are tiny. Our great, great grandchildren, they're not going to know our names. Our great, 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 we're going to be some, you know, family tree project that they have to look up and research. They're not going to know anything about us. We are going to be forgotten. And so this first opponent of Solomon, as, he, as he's wrestling through nature, trying to come up with an answer, he gets pinned. Nature takes him down. He realizes whatever answer he's going to come up with, it's not going to be very long-lasting. And so he is vexed. He says, vanity of vanity. Nothing's going to be remembered. What's going to come after? It doesn't matter. And so match one, it goes to nature. But he's not done. He's going to keep wrestling. And so he takes on his next competitor. His next competitor is the inner reason, the inner light, the inner wisdom of man. So he can't find it out there. Maybe he can find it somehow inside of his own soul. So Solomon starts to try to puzzle things out. Verse 12, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness. I have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart was under, has understood great wisdom and knowledge, And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is grasping for the wind. He looks inward. He says, can I puzzle this out? Can I, the riches of my knowledge, is there something internal to me that will give me insight into this question about what do I gain in all this toil under the sun? And he comes up with nothing. He comes up with nothing, but again, vanity and emptiness. And What's most disturbing to him is it's not as though he's making any progress. Like He's not circling around the answer like, oh, I I think I almost got it. If only I could just put these two things together. The more he dives in, the deeper he goes with his wisdom, with his knowledge, the more pain he endures, the more frustration he gets. It goes further and further away the more he strives after it. He cannot answer this question with human knowledge, with human wisdom, because we aren't capable. Our our knowledge, our wisdom, it doesn't stretch that far. We can't figure out this puzzle. I I really enjoy reading uh, and studying the Austrian school of economics and reading people like Bastiat and Mises and Hayek and and some of the more modern-day economists like Sol and, and Bordeaux and Roberts. These Austrian economists, they get this principle as it applies to the economy. They understand that economies are unbelievably complicated, that they're made up of the decisions, the individual decisions of millions and millions of people in combination with one another with different desires and goals and values. And if you try to figure out a policy, a one-size-fits-all policy for wages and for prices and for industries, that this is absurd. They really understand that, and our bureaucrats and our politicians would greatly benefit by soaking in some Ecclesiastes, for sure, because despite all of our data, despite all of our models and our forecasts, despite all of the computers running algorithms, 
Something as basic as the economy can't be figured out. It's just too big. It's too vast. It's too complicated for us to grasp or control. And if economics is really difficult, if we can't figure that out with all of our computer models, how much more something as Hebel-like as a virus? The vain attempt to grab hold of or control a microscopic virus that literally is in the wind, <laughs> that's like literally trying to grab the wind. And yet, our governors, our policymakers, they've engaged in absurd levels of hubris. Imagine that, they know, imagine that they know how to control the spread of a virus. That arrogance and overreach, it indeed has brought great sorrow, great grief to all of us. The world needs to hear the message of Ecclesiastes. The Lord needs to hear Psalm 131. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. There are things in the world which are bent, which aren't going to be answered, which God is not going to answer. There are some cro crooked things that simply will not be straightened. In fact, if you keep reading in Ecclesiastes, you'll find God acts on purpose to bend things. By design, he crooks it so that we can't figure out what's going to come after us. So we can't connect those dots between our toil and the grand purposes of the universe. God is deliberately thwarting that. We are not going to figure some things out. So round one went to nature. Round two goes to human wisdom or the limits of human wisdom. Solomon cannot find an answer to his question in any of these things. And so he goes on to his next area of inquiry. He takes on his next uh, opponent, which are accomplishments. Accomplishments. Maybe he can't find it in nature. Maybe he won't find it inside. Maybe he can build something in the world that will give meaning, that will give purpose to all the toil at which he toils under the sun. Chapter 2, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched my heart, how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of man, and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on the works that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I toiled, and indeed, all was vanity. 
and grasping for the wind. There was no prophet under the sun. So Solomon goes after his question in the area of accomplishments. He wants to try to build something, establish something, uh, a memorial for his name, a grand work that would last, but no. He, he pursues his ambitions and his accomplishments in all sorts of areas, in the areas of pleasure and of food and, and, and wine and of building projects. He, he built an incredible palace with gardens and vineyards and orchards. He had a household with so many children and servants. He acquires gold and riches and wealth. He engages in the arts with music and with song, every accomplishment he can possibly imagine. But despite his relentless pursuit, despite all that he attained, all that he accomplished more than anyone else, he still, in the end, comes to the exact same conclusion. What is it? What's the gain? Verse 11, there was no prophet under the sun. So he tries to find it out there in nature. He tries to look in the depths of his soul for wisdom. He tries to build things and attain things. No, no, no answer. What gain is there in all this toil under the sun? Nothing, nothing. If he wasn't defeated already, I mean, you'd think by this time he'd be done, right? But no, he's going to keep going, and, and actually he, he comes to his fourth wrestling match, his fourth opponent, and this one, this, this is the supreme mortal combatant. Now he goes up against death itself in his fourth match. In verses 12, he goes on to say, Then I turned myself to consider wisdom and mod, madness and folly. For what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I perceived, I myself perceived, that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For there is no more remembrance of the wise man than of the fool forever since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die as the fool? Therefore, I hated life because of the work that was done under the sun. It was distressing to me, for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Nature took him down. Human wisdom couldn't find it. Accomplishments, no. And now, whatever answer he might come up with, he realizes, but then I die. What if I build great things, wonderful things? What good is that? I'm still going to die. And so this idea, of the, the reality of death, it, it vexes him. The idea of death, he knows it's going to come to an end, and this drives him to the point of madness. But you know, Solomon, he, square, he, he stared death right in the face. He, he, he looked at it honestly, and it vexed him. It almost drove him mad. But you know what else? You know what else you can be driven mad by? a complete reluctance or inability to, to, to recognize the fact that you're going to die at all. And you know, I think the reason why our world today is so upside down and so vexed and so mad and so deranged, it's because they will not even think about, accept the fact that they are going to die. They cannot, they will not. There was a, a video in one of my news feeds um, not too long ago. I couldn't, I couldn't find it, so I can't reference it exactly, but... 
But it was, um, it was one of these, you know, pundits arguing back and forth about lockdown policies. You know, I've seen hundreds of those, thousands of those this year. But what was remarkable about this one is the, the pro-lockdown guy at one point, he just came very exasperated by the other speaker. And he just, he just, he speaks and says, wait, are you, are you honestly trying to tell me that we have to become accustomed to some amount of death? <laughs> what do you even say? <laughs> like, Mm, yes, 100% in fact, we're, we are all going to die. But, but people in our world, they truly don't want to think about it. They're unwilling to contend with the reality of their own mortality. And you can be, you can be deranged by being so obsessed with death like Solomon, or you can be vexed and deranged by simply ignoring it and putting it off and pretending like it's never going to happen. Either way, death is going to cause derangement. Death is going to cause irrationality. It's going to make you vexed and it's going to make you mad. The world goes mad because it cannot face death. Solomon was vexed because he was consumed by the fact that he would eventually die. And so he comes to his summation of the problem and of the elusive problem of his question in verse 18 to 23. Then I hated all my labor in which I toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to a man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore, I turned my heart and, and despaired of all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. Yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what has man for all his labor and all the striving of his heart which he has toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. And even in the night, his heart does ne takes no rest. This also is vanity. Vanity. I warned you, this is the WWE of the Bible. This is, it's, it's some bleak stuff. It, this robs us of any sense that we're going to be able to connect our toil, our efforts, the things we do day after day after day, with any ultimate gain or profit or meaning. If we focus just in this world, and we don't think about the next one. We just focus in this world. We got nothing. Our toil results in nothing. This, however, is not the ultimate answer. This is not his final answer. But it is one that we cannot move too quickly through. We have to be willing to take all of this full on, accept it because it's true, it stands, before we can come to his more hopeful answer. And if we do accept that first answer, then we will be prepared for the next. And thankfully, he does come to a different answer, which we're going to see in verse 24 to the end of the chapter. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God, for who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and collecting, that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity 
and grasping for the wind. Did you catch the change in those last few verses? I mean, it's still pretty much the same. Nothing fundamental changes. There isn't anything he can grasp and lay hold of that answers in in his days with respect to his toil. He doesn't get any of that. But there is a change. There is something that happens. He begins to recognize that if you accept all of his first lessons, then God, by his gift, God, by his grace, will add something in. Enjoyment. Enjoyment. This I saw, that a man should eat and drink, and his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This is from the hand of God. Who can eat and who can have enjoyment more than I? When we accept the limits that are set on us in our pursuit, in our demands for meaning, in our demands for impact, in our demand to want to see things uh, for how they're going to affect the whole world, when we accept those limits and accept the grace of God in it, the realities don't change, but our orientation does. Our orientation does. Then and only then can we come to receive the joy that God has built into the very toil itself. That's God's gift. If you receive his gift, then you don't have to be vexed and strive for something else out there. No, it's right there in it. The gift is in it. In the toil, you find joy. You find enjoyment. You find contentment. And in the very simple, beautiful gifts that God gives that come from your toil, like eating and drinking. But these gifts, these experiences of joy in toil and enjoying the gifts that correspond with it, they're not automatic. They're not automatic. So many things, like we've seen in the text already, so many things can disrupt that joy and destroy it. In fact, without the grace of God, without that gift, enjoyment and joy and contentment and peace, it is going to elude us like the wind. But when we're freed from our striving, when we rest in the Lord, then we can see, then we are able to receive the joys and the blessings that God has for us. Solomon's final answer is actually very, very simple. Simple like the gospel. We just have to stop ignoring the problem, which is that, yeah, the sentence of death is on us. Yeah, you're going to die. We have to stop ignoring that, and we have to repent. We have to stop demanding a place at God's table based on our works and based on our efforts, and instead accept his gift, accept his grace to find that peace and that joy and contentment. It's very, very simple, but it makes all the difference. When we accept our creaturely limits, when we trust the big picture to God, then when we, when we just walk in the simplicity of our callings, our assigned work that God gives for us, then vexation is replaced with enjoyment and contentment. But we can't arrive there until we're first made to limp. That's why we need all of those first wrestling matches. We have to be pinned. We have to be taken down. We have to be cured by smash mouth Ecclesiastes so that we can be built back up and live in the blessings that God has given to us. We have to repent of self-will, of selfish ambition, of our demands to make an impact. Then, and only then, do we find joy and comfort and pleasure and happiness and peace. The first two chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, it sets the theme, it sets the pattern for the whole book. 
But there are 12 chapters in Ecclesiastes. It's not done after two. And so Solomon, if you continue to read through Ecclesiastes, he's going to take the same question. He's going to explore it and search it in all manner of occasions and circumstances that happen under the sun. He explores it in, in the context of oppression and of failure and of generational unfaithfulness and of economic privation and wars and upheavals and accidents and insurrections, all manner of broken and bent conditions. And you know what? There's nothing new under the sun. In our day, as we live and we see all these things going on, and we're like, what is going on? What's happening with the world? We can know that just like Solomon, our role in it, our place in it, we're a blip. Tiny, tiny, tiny segment, slice and sliver of history. It's not up to us. God doesn't ask us to understand how what we're doing contributes to the grand scheme and purpose. Now, God does have a grand scheme and purpose. He does know how your tiny bit of toil actually contributes to that grand scheme, and he does use your toil. He just forbids you from knowing how that's going to work out. God knows his plan. God knows his timetable. He knows every event in history, and he knows every work of ours and how he has arranged it to bring about his purposes. And his purposes will be accomplished. The gospel is going to be victorious. The nations are going to be discipled, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against his purposes. The kingdoms of this world will submit to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The the knowledge of Yahweh is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. And we don't need to know how our assignments and our calling and our work contributes to that. In fact, we shouldn't try, because if we try, God's just going to thwart us and we're going to be vexed. But instead, we can just engage the things he set before us. Whatever your work is, when you go to the office, you might feel like this is a dead-end job. You might think this is money. What do you have to do it day after day? What's the point? You may be taking care of your family and washing dishes day after day, washing clothes, taking care of kids day after day. What does this all mean? What's the impact? What's my life all about? Don't worry about that. If you try to connect those dots, you are just going to be vexed. You're not going to get an answer. But if you just rest, accept that toil, accept that assignment, you will receive God's favor, his blessing, his grace, and you'll find enjoyment in the very routine, ordinary acts that God's assigned for you to do. The message of Solomon gives us this confidence, this this contentment in all of our toil. But you know what? We have even more light than Solomon. We have more information about this question than he did because one greater than Solomon has come. The greater son of David, the king of Israel, has come. The Lord Jesus Christ has come. And the gospel and the promises of the gospel give us even more to be, enjoy, to, to be joyful about. The new covenant in Christ magnifies and enriches all of these blessings even further. And while we still can't connect the dots, we're not going to get that kind of answer. We're not going to get promises that you're going to know how your life contributes to the unfolding of God's plan. No, but you do get promises about your toil. You get Matthew 6.20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, nor thieves break in and steal. You get promises like 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Listen for the echoes of Ecclesiastes in this this verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work, the toil of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's not in vain in the Lord. Colossians 3.22, bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of an inheritance. You serve the Lord Christ. Even slaves who are in the Lord are assured that whatever their toil might be, whatever gets assigned to them by their master, they're going to receive the reward from Christ. We're still not told how our works contribute to God's unfolding plan. None of our business. He's got that figured out. But we are told, we are assured that our works are not in vain in the Lord. And so if you're anxious about your works, if you're anxious about the world, if you're despairing about things, just just be, be at rest. God has assigned your days. He's assigned your works. Don't be troubled. Simply focus on being grateful and look for God's gift of enjoyment in your very toil. Enjoy the simple daily blessings that come from your work of eating and drinking with loved ones and the joy of being productive in whatever capacity you're called. Solomon's words, they still assure us that there is much to gain if we find God's grace in our toil, if we embrace it as a gift. But Jesus assures us that on top of all of those blessings, he will heap grace upon grace, magnifying our joy, magnifying our contentment. And on top of all of our earthly joys, he's promised eternal rewards when we come to the end of our brief span of our lives. And so this morning, let us eat and let us drink with joy, with hearts knowing that we are receiving the greatest gift of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Let's enjoy the good pleasure of our God and the favor of all God's people through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful and simple gift you have given to us in the toil and work that you have assigned. Help us to accept your calling, accept your assignments, and to go about our works with faithfulness and contentment. Calm any agitated spirits and humble any out-of-scale ambitions. Thank you for the full range of blessings poured out upon us in Jesus Christ our Lord, and it's his name we pray. Amen. Amen. And now let us continue to worship God by bringing his tithe.